0: Here now from James chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless God, our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same now proceed blessing and cursing my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And there ends our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. God, pray, Father. We thank you for your word. May it be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, Father. May your Word shape our lives comprehensively, inside and out. May the truths of Your Word sink down into our minds and our hearts. May the truths of Your Word sink down into every nook and cranny of our lives, shaping even the details of how we live for you, uh, before You, so that every aspect of our lives might be submitted to Your rule. Father, we pray that Your Spirit work these things in us. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. James addresses the tongue because we are talkative creatures. We are chatty creatures, you might say. Even the more introspective and introverted among us are still using words all the time. We talk, we text, we write. We are constantly using words to communicate. While language remains quite mysterious to both scientists and philosophers, for us as Christians... There is a very basic explanation for why we talk, why we communicate. We speak because God is a speaker, and we are made in his image. God is a talkative God. God is a chatty God. God has a lot to say, and so we are talkative creatures. To be more specific, really, the the Trinity explains this uh, as we see this unpacked in Scripture as a whole, the Father speaks, the Son is the word spoken by the Father, and the Spirit is the mighty breath of the Father that carries the word, that proceeds from the Father. The Father speaks, the Son is his word, the Spirit is the breath that carries the word. And so in our speaking, we image the Trinity, or at least we are supposed to image the Trinity in our speaking. The problem is that uh, sometimes our speech is nothing like God's speech. Sin has corrupted us. Sin has corrupted our communication. Oh yes, we still speak like God, but what comes out of our mouths is not godly at all, a great deal of the time. Think about the qualities of God's word, the characteristics or attributes or features of God's word, what God does through his word. God's Word has power. Genesis 1 shows us that God spoke the world into existence. God created through His Word. He spoke the world into being. And now, of course, we're also told in Scripture He upholds the world by the Word of His power. God's Word has power. God's Word is His power. God's Word is truthful. Indeed, His Word is the very definition and standard of truth. His word defines reality. All other truth claims must be tested against God's word. God's word is the standard. His word to us, this word given to us in scripture, is inerrant. It is infallible. God's word is wise. God always says the best possible thing in the best possible way. His words are always fitting, perfectly chosen, perfectly suited to the occasion. God's Word is loving and kind, God's Word corrects and transforms, God's Word is righteous and just. Indeed, what we find in Scripture is that God's Word has all the same attributes as God Himself. Now, our words are to be like God's Word. It's interesting, in Psalm 19, David spends a number of verses there praising God's word. He's singing praise to God's law. And then he prays, Lord make the words of my mouth pleasing in your sight. David wants his own words to echo God's word. He wants his words to be patterned after God's word that they might be pleasing in God's sight. Our words ought to have the same qualities as God's word. God's design for our speech is that it might reflect his own So think about it. Think about those, those qualities, those attributes of God's Word that we just talked about. How do our words reflect those qualities, those attributes? Well, God's Word has power. Our words have a kind of power as well, a kind of power at a creaturely level. Words of a parent. Think about this, parents. The words of a parent have power over a child to shape that child's identity. Through your words, parents, you are molding your children. And you can use your words, like God, to build that child up, or you can use your words in a satanic way to destroy that child. We can see the power of our words in other ways, how our words create. When a man and a woman stand up together and say, I do, and a pastor says, I now pronounce you man and wife, what has happened A marriage has been created through those words. Those words have created a new family. We know that our words have power to change things, to form relationships or destroy relationships. Think about this example. If you say something unkind, those unkind words have power, power to rupture a relationship. And we've all experienced this because we've all either said things that hurt people, or had people say things to us that hurt us, we know that those words have power in our lives and in the lives of others. Words can destroy, words have power to destroy a relationship. On the other hand, well-chosen words, rightly delivered, can motivate people to action, can transform how people live. Think of the great speeches, power speeches, powerful speeches that have changed the course of history four score and seven years ago. I have a dream. Ask not what your country can do for you. These are words that shaped the way people live their lives. Uh, Booker T. Washington, one of the greatest Americans to ever live, said his whole life was redirected by a few encouraging words General Armstrong spoke to him. Words that created a, an opportunity for him, that gave him hope and and a new vision for his future. Just a few words sent his life in an entirely different course. These kinds of words have power. Power that mimics the creative and transformative energy of God's own words. They are power work. Or consider truth. We've seen that God's word is truth. Our words should be truthful As well, our speech should correspond to reality. Our words should conform to the facts. Of course, we know truthful speech is hard to come by in a fallen world. Satan led the human race into ruin with words, with false words, with lying words. That's why Scripture identifies Satan as the father of lies. But all too often, people imitate They are satanic in their speech, speaking out lies. And so now, not only do we speak lies all too often to one another, but we all too often want to listen to lies. Sometimes we prefer lies to the truth, like Adam and Eve in the garden. They preferred the serpent's false speech to God's true speech. And all too often we're like that. We only want to hear what our itching ears want to hear. Think about this, God's Word is wisdom. God's words are always fitly chosen. Our words should be wise as well. We should use the right words in the right situation. Words that are fitting. Words that are appropriate. Proverbs 17 says, whoever restrains his word has knowledge and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Again and again you see this in Proverbs that we're where there are many words, there's probably a whole lot of sin as well. It's, and, and, and there's often wisdom then in restraining our speech. This is something that Proverbs shows us. Wisdom is not only seen in what we say and how we say it, but also when we don't say something, when we keep silent. Wisdom can manifested in not speaking as well. It's as if Proverbs describes the situation this way. We have a huge storehouse of words built up, a, a huge storehouse of words. We could say, and the wise man is careful only to let certain chosen words out. Wisdom acts as a kind of filter on his speech. God doesn't have to think before he speaks, obviously. But if we want our words to reflect his wise speech, we will have to think before we speak. Or we'll have to make wise speech a kind of habit because we have... Uh, committed ourselves and disciplined ourselves and restrained ourselves in this way so regularly. God never has to take any words back. He never misspeaks. We should always be mindful that our words, once spoken, are like arrows. Once we release them, we can't pull them back. We can't unsay what has been said. Godly speech, wise speech, means we choose our words We like to say that Scripture is inspired right down to the very letters in its original form. That's God's wisdom. God carefully choosing how He would communicate everything to us He's given to us in the same way. We must be careful. We must take care in how we communicate. In the book of James, how we use our tongue is presented to us as the real test of Christian perfection. Or we might say Christian maturity. The whole book of James is about calling God's people to maturity. And James says, okay, here it is. This is the real test of Christian maturity. This will tell you whether or not you have arrived. James shows us that tongue control is the surest sign of Christian maturity. James reminds us we've tamed wild beasts. Even as Adam tamed the, the, the beasts that were in the garden. In fact, Adam ruled over those beasts with his tongue when he named them. But it's as if now James is saying we have to tame the wild beast in our mouths. We have to tame our tongues. We know we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that means loving God with all of who we are. Loving God with our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, and yes, our tongues. What does it mean to love God with our tongue? The tongue's a small member. James shows us this as well. But it has a big impact, like the rudder of a ship. It's so small, but it steers the whole ship. Or a bit in the horse's mouth. It's so small, but it directs this great animal. Or just a little spark that can start a huge, roaring forest fire. James teaches us the dangers of the tongue. Now, as we've seen in looking at this passage, he is especially focused on teachers and preachers in the church. Those who are engaged in what we call the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is obviously a ministry of words. And James wants teachers to understand, therefore it is very dangerous. A preacher's words can steer a whole congregation the same way a rudder steers a ship. And the preacher's words have to carry the weight of glory. They ought to be vehicles of life and truth and goodness and beauty. Pastors who fail to speak God's word after him will be judged more strictly, James said. But we also need to keep this in view. What James says is true for pastors in a very specific way. It's true for all Christians in a general way. These verses apply to all of us. They apply to all of us in all of life. While James is especially focused on teachers, the principles he gives apply to all Christians in all situations. So what I want to do this morning, I, I made reference to this in the announcements, what I want to do, you've seen James' big picture principles here, what I want to do is fill in the details here with specifics drawn from Proverbs. Well, I've already shown you in various ways how James really is a New Testament Proverbs. James is wisdom literature, So what better place to turn to to fill in what James is teaching us here to give us the details than going to Proverbs. Because Proverbs gives us all kinds of instruction about speech that fits very well with what James says here. There's really nothing more practical for us to consider than our speech. Speech ethics. Because we talk all the time. We're constantly communicating. Proverbs gives us detailed wisdom about our speech, showing us sinful forms of speech we need to avoid. The, what, what James is showing us in the big picture, the kind of speech he warns us about, Proverbs goes into the detail. And we don't want our speech to set fire to our relationships. We don't want our tongues to set hellfire to those around us. We've got to learn to guard our tongues and channel our speech in the right way, in a wise way, and Proverbs can help us to do this. So let's consider some categories of sinful speech. And after I do that, I'll uh, turn very briefly at the end to talk about categories of righteous speech. We're going to talk about words that curse, and then we'll talk about words that bless. Start with angry speech, because this is something James has already wor- warned us about. James has already warned us about expressing anger in our words. It says back in chapter 1, be slow to anger and slow to speak. Might feel good to vent your anger. You might even have been told that it is good for you to vent your anger, that it's healthy to just let it all hang out, to, 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 to shout if you need to. But in reality, it is disastrous. Proverbs 15.1 advises, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs shows us that a lack of self-control, particularly of one's temper, is a sign of foolishness. It's a sign of immaturity. The tongue, how we speak, reveals what's going on in our hearts. If we don't have our emotions under control, if we can't keep our emotions in check, that's going to show in our speech. So who is the fool in Proverbs in this way? Well, the fool is someone who's easily offended and therefore easily angered. And then he vents his anger. He expresses his anger in his speech. The content and tone of his speech is destructive. He is an impatient man. He is quick to anger. Contrasted with God, who we're told again and again is slow to anger. The solution, of course, is to learn to control our tongues. But in order to do that, we must learn to control our emotions. Will Rogers once said, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. And indeed, that is true. When Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, that phrase, turns away wrath, is often used in Scripture to describe what sacrifices on the altar do. To answer softly, you must make a sacrifice. You have to die to yourself. You've got to die. And in doing so, yes, it's going to be very painful, but in doing so, you also will transform the situation. This situation that is is escalating, that's getting really, really intense. A soft answer turns aside wrath. You reconcile a relationship that would otherwise rupture Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. This is really the same lesson as James. If you can control your tongue, if you can control your angry speech in high-pressure situations, if you can keep your poise in emotionally charged situations, you can do anything. You can do anything. You have tremendous Let's go to another category. Uh, There's gossip and slander, what Proverbs uh, sometimes calls whispering speech. The Apostle Paul addresses this problem uh, when he says, do not be a busybody. So Proverbs 26.20 says, for lack of wood, a fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. You can go back to Torah and find this same teaching. Leviticus 1916, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Whispering and talebearing are terms for gossip, and we know that gossip is destructive. It destroys relationships, sharing things that are inappropriate with, with, with people who don't need to hear them in an inappropriate manner at an inappropriate time. This is true. Even if if the gossip happens to be factual, even if it happens to be true, it's still destructive. Even if it's put in the form of a prayer request, it's still destructive. Just because something is true doesn't mean it needs to be shared. It's interesting, the New Testament term for a talebearer is a busybody. That's the term the Apostle Paul uses. Peter uses that term as well. A nosy person who is always intruding into other people's business talking about other people's business when it's really none of their business. Jane Austen said, everyone is surrounded by a neighborhood of voluntary spies. The gossip is one who is constantly spying on other people. Uh, Sometimes we're just a little too interested in the affairs of others. We pry a little too much into their business, and then we want to share a little too much of what we know with others. And of course, we want to do this because gossiping makes us look important and makes us feel important, like we're part of this inner circle, like we're really in the know. Now understand this, it's not just a sin to spread gossip, uh, to have this inappropriate conversation about someone else, to inappropriate others at an inappropriate time. It's also sin to entertain gossip, to... Take it in. Listening to gossip can be just as much of a sin as sharing gossip. Gossip wouldn't be shared if there wasn't a market for it, if people didn't want to hear it. And so when a conversation drifts towards gossip, I'd encourage you to ask a series of questions. Should this really be shared? Do I need to know this? Do I have a right to know this? Ask, where did you get this information? Is it true? Is it accurate? Is there another side to the story? Because obviously the person being talked about is not there to defend themselves. Is there another side to the story? Is this verified by two or three witnesses? What do you want me to do with this information? That's a great question because the one gossiping really doesn't want you to do anything with it. They don't want you to go to somebody who might be able to solve the problem. They don't want you to go to the person and talk about what the issue is. Gossips don't want you to do anything but take the life in the misdeeds and misfortunes of others. Gossip is never about solving the problem or helping someone who may need correction or encouragement. And this is why gossip erodes trust. It's like pouring acid on relationships. And I tell you too, to remember, anyone who gossips to you will just as quickly gossip about you when you're not around. Huge problem that Proverbs addresses. Let's go to another category. There is profanity or filthy speech. Proverbs fifteen verse two says the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Well, what does that foolishness look like? Foolish talk can come in all different kinds of forms. Foolish talk is talk that is corrupt, it's evil, it's immature. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 because he picks up on this thread. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good, to edify and impart grace to others. Then he goes on in Ephesians 5, Paul says, do not let there be among you foolish talking or coarse jesting which are not fitting." Paul is talking about little people here with little vocabularies who can express themselves only in crass ways. He's talking about people who have a depraved sense of humor. People who talk in very coarse or filthy ways. And obviously we live in a culture that is full of this kind of Foolish talk, And I would say, parents, if you are not discipling your children in how to speak wisely, the culture, particularly Hollywood, would be more than happy to disciple them in how to speak foolishly. This foolish talk, much of it is sexual in nature. Much of it is sexual. Our whole entertainment industry thrives on producing this kind of foolish material that is full of coarse jesting and corrupt speech. And this kind of foolish, immature, degrading conversation, Paul says, should not be known among us. There should not even be a hint of this kind of sin among the people of God. Let me give you another category of speech that curses. Dishonest speech. Speech that intentionally distorts the truth. Speech that misleads others when we owe them the truth. God's word is trustworthy. If God said it, you can bank on it. Our words ought to be trustworthy as well. You know, there's a saying, you're only as good as your word. Your word should be your bond. Well, that should certainly characterize Christian relationships and Christian speech. The truth is simple. It's always lying that complicates things. You know, Mark Twain uh, once said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. (laughs) Some of us lie to ourselves and lie to others so regularly we start to believe our own lies and we can't uh, any longer distinguish fantasy from, from, from the truth. Fact and fiction get blurred. Of course, the ultimate form of dishonesty is bearing false witness against your neighbor in a court of law. It's in the Ten Commandments. Because God always keeps His promises, we should be promise keepers as well, Psalm 15 speaks of swearing even to your own hurt, keeping a promise even when it's painful to do so, even if it's costly to keep your word, you do so. Scripture shows us again and again. When we owe somebody the truth, we need to speak the truth. When we make a promise, we need to keep it. One example of dishonesty in everyday speech is flattery. How often do we engage in flattery, falsely complimenting someone, perhaps sometimes to avoid a confrontation? But more often, it would seem, to manipulate the other person. That's really what flattery is, a form of manipulation. Proverbs 26 describes flattery as a form of deception. It says, a flattering mouth works ruin. Psalm 12, verse 3, uh, David prays, may the Lord cut off flattering lips. And that's a prayer God will answer. Those who engage in flattery will be judged. Flattery is an attempt to use people to get what you want from them. It may just be that you want their approval. Maybe it's somebody more powerful than you. Maybe it's you want to be accepted in their social group. And so you flatter them. You want so badly to be liked, you give these false compliments. Maybe that you're trying to butter somebody up to, to get something more from them. Whatever the case, flattery is a form of dishonesty. It ought not to be used by the people of God. This is a, 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 a language technique, a, a form of speech we ought not to engage in. There's another form of speech that curses. Grumbling speech. James will address this later in his letter. James 5.9, he says, "...do not grumble against one another, brethren." There are plenty of examples of this in Proverbs. One is certainly the nagging wife in chapter 27. A quarrelsome wife or a nagging wife is like a dripping faucet. There's not just wives who can fall into this sin. It's We're all prone to it. Paul tells the whole church in Philippians 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Grumbling speech is idolatrous. This is what the Israelites show us in their wilderness wandering when they grumbled against God grumbling always reveals a lack of contentment in your heart out of the heart the mouth speaks grumbling speech shows your heart is dissatisfied with God it means you want another God you want another God other than the God a God who will meet your needs who will satisfy your whims who will fulfill your desires the true God's not getting it done for you When you grumble, you're complaining against Him, wishing you had a different God. It's going after another God. But when we grumble, we're not only complaining against God, very often we're complaining against or about other people. Grumbling can take the form of a hypercritical spirit. We've all been around people like this, or perhaps we've engaged in this ourselves, where you're just constantly nitpicking and fault-finding. You are hypercritical. Grumbling against others. This reveals pride and self-righteousness in the heart. Yet at the same time, it reveals a deep-seated insecurity that leads you to look down on others. Complaining or criticizing others constantly is a way of tearing others down so you can prop yourself up. You tear others down so you can feel better about yourself. It's a form of self-justification. Which is really no justification at all. Grumbling speech is the overflow of a grumbling heart. It's the overflow of a dissatisfied heart. You know, they say if you get bad service at one restaurant, it might just be a bad restaurant. But if you get bad service at ten restaurants in a row, the restaurants probably aren't the problem. (laughs) You're most likely the problem. Guard yourself against a critical, discontented, fault-finding mindset. Sometimes we go. This is just this is my spiritual gift, the gift of discernment. I can see what's wrong with all. No, that's not. A, that's uh, John Wesley dealt with a woman who spoke this way. She said, "Well, it's just my gift to, to find fault with things. I'm just discerning." And he said, "Well, that's one talent. God wouldn't mind if you buried." Well, that's true. Just bury it. Don't criticize everyone and everything to death. You'll not only ruin the people around you, you will ruin yourself. These kinds of words unleash the fires of hell. Now, obviously, there are other categories of sinful speech. We haven't dealt with all of them, but this gives you some idea of what's in Proverbs. Now, the details in Proverbs fill in the broad principles there in James. All of these are ways our tongues can burn with the fires of hell, as James describes. But what if our tongues are going to burn with the fire of heaven? The fire of God's Spirit. Remember the tongues of fire... Those flaming tongues that came and rested above the heads of the disciples at Pentecost so they could speak with the fire of heaven, the fire of God's Spirit. What does that look like? If our tongues are going to burn with the fire of heaven, what's it going to look like? Well, again, James gives us the big principles. Proverbs especially fills in the details. What if instead of words that curse God's image, as James warns us about, we speak words that bless God's image bearers? What happens then? What's our speech sound like then? Well, we will speak words of thanksgiving. And certainly that starts with what we're doing here this morning. We will thank God from whom all blessings flow. Thanksgiving and praise towards God. Thanking and praising God is really the foundation of all good and true speech. God made your mouth. He gave you a mouth so you could speak and sing thanksgiving and praise to Him. And of course, this thanksgiving is the opposite of entitlement to give thanks. You must humble yourself before God and recognize He is the giver to whom you owe everything. But even as we thank and praise God for everything, so we will learn to thank and praise other people in our lives. Because how does God deliver His blessings to us? So often God delivers His blessings into our lives through other people. And so as we thank God, we learn to thank God's agents and God's instruments. Those whom God uses to bring His blessing into our lives. We use our words to bless. Here's another way. We will use our words to bless others as we encourage, affirm, and compliment people. Not in flattering ways. But in honest ways, now sometimes it might be hard to think of a compliment to give another person or some way to encourage them. But everyone who's made in the image of God has some kind of glory in them. Find that glory. Find what's good in another person and praise it. We don't use our words enough to build other people up. To spread grace into their lives. We need to understand, encouragement really does bring out the best in other people. You will get more of what you praise. And so, encouragement motivates. It's fuel, especially for those who are struggling. You know, a good rule for parenting, I've, I've talked about parenting already, but again, let me say this to you, parents. A good rule of parenting is catch your kids doing something good. And when you find them doing something good, praise them for it. Find opportunities to praise your children. Find opportunities to praise other people in your life. That praise goes a long way. It is remarkable how much a few words of encouragement can transform someone's life. To give someone a compliment is to give a gift of immense value. Not all talk is cheap. And when we engage in words, when we use words to encourage other people, these words are valuable. Kind words are valuable and powerful in people's lives. We should speak words to others that give them cheer and joy. We should speak words that comfort. In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul says, Comfort one another with these words. He's talking about the words of Scripture, really. Of course, the most comforting words of all are the words of the Gospel. Speak these words to one another. You are forgiven. Christ died for you. God loves you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. Those are the words that will comfort people. We should be speaking those kinds of words to one another. These words are not only informative, they're transformative. They are words that edify. Ephesians 4 gives us the rule, Paul says, only speak that which will build others up. Only speak that which will edify. That word edify is so good. It's an architectural term. It's a construction term to those people whose lives are crumbling, to those people who have fallen down under the weight of sin or suffering. Edifying words can reconstruct them. Edifying words can rebuild their lives on a solid foundation. Edifying words provide provide strength and reinforcement. Proverbs says, our words hold the power of life or death. What kind of words will you speak? Speak words of life. Proverbs 15 says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverse speech breaks the spirit. You need to know your every word is heard in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Even every idle word will be brought into judgment. What you say says a great deal about who you are. At the last day, you will give an account of everything you have said, every idle word. Will your words be shown to have imparted life to others? Will your words prove to have been a tree of life to others? Words of truth, beauty, and goodness. Fitly chosen words of wisdom. Words that communicate and impart love. That's the language of heaven. Or will an examination of your words at the last day show that your native language is really hell? That you speak satanic speech. You've engaged in satanic speech. You're, you've spoken foolish words of hellfire that spread destruction. Which will it be? Your words reveal your heart, which means your words reveal where you are from. Are you from below? Are you the seed of the serpent following the father of lies? Or are you born again from above? Born into God's family? Your words are going to reveal where you're from. Whose family you belong to. Your family of origin. Satan's family or God's family. And your words will reveal where you're going. Does the trajectory of your life lead up to heaven or down to hell? Your words tell the story. Make your words a tree of life. To others. That's what Proverbs teaches. Use your words to form a new garden of Eden for those around you. To give life to those who hear you. Psalm 9, Psalm 5, 9 says of the wicked, their throats are an open grave. The words of the wicked are words of death and decay. Their words entomb others in a dark grave. Proverbs says, make your words a tree of life. Make your words, speak your words, so they form a garden of Eden for all of those around you to dwell in. A garden of Eden, a kind of paradise. Make sure your words are always a tree of life. Speak words that bring life and light and love into the hearts of others. Let's pray and ask God to help us do these things. Father, may our words be a tree of life to others. May our words create a Garden of Eden, as it were, for all those who are in relationship with us. Father, help us to do these things that You might be glorified through us, that our speech might demonstrate that we have been born anew into Your family, that You are our Father, that our speaking is patterned after Your own speaking. May our words show where we are headed, that we are headed to a life of eternal glory with You that we're speaking the language of heaven already. Father, help us in this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.